about a month ago, I read something online. It was a story that someone had posted about a university professor who offered a fairly powerful object lesson to his students in one of his classes. The subject was legal studies, and it was the first lecture of the year. So the professor entered into the lecture hall. It was about 100 students waiting there for him. And he started looking around. You there, in the eighth row, he said. Can you tell me your name? My name is Sandra, she said. The professor asks her, please leave my lecture hall. I don't want to see you in my lecture. The whole class goes quiet. The student is obviously irritated because she knows she didn't do anything to deserve this treatment, but she slowly packs up her things and stands up. Faster, please, the professor demands. The students don't say, dare to say anything, and the one student quietly leaves the hall. The professor keeps looking around, and all the rest of the students are fidgeting in their chairs, nervously wondering what might happen to them next. But then the professor asks this question, why are there laws? Everyone is quiet. They start looking around at each other. What are laws for? He asks again. Social order, comes the answer from one of the rows. Another student says, to protect a person's personal rights. Another says, so that you can rely on the state. But based on the look on the professor's face, he's not satisfied by these responses, and he continues to wait. Finally, one student calls out, justice. And the professor smiles. Thank you very much, he says. Now, did I behave unfairly towards your classmate earlier? Everyone nods. Indeed, I did, he says. Why didn't anyone protest? Why didn't any of you try to stop me? Why didn't you want to prevent this injustice? Nobody answers. What would you have done? Is the natural question at the end of this narrative. Would you have said something? Would you have stood up? What would you have done in that situation? Why did God create laws for his people? Was it because he was trying to assert dominance over them, trying to make sure that he could match up to the other nations and one-up them, make sure that he was demonstrated as the God above all gods? Was it because he wanted to make sure that the Israelites understood their place as his servants? Or was it because he was teaching them something about justice? Something, perhaps, that without divine revelation, human beings actually don't understand or wouldn't be able to do on their own. Something about how humans were created to treat one another. How he wanted them to treat one another. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Jeremiah called Finding God in the Wilderness. And this morning is kind of a finding God in the wilderness of injustice. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you haven't already, I know I see a lot of you with your, your Bibles already open, which is perfect. Uh, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. The words will also be up on the screen. 
Um, and I just want to give a quick caveat. We are, of course, touching on the theme of justice this morning. There is no way that I can say everything there is to say about justice. And so we are going to be focusing a little bit on a few things. Um, might bring up a little bit more next week, a bit of a part two next week. But I just wanted to make sure that caveat was out there. There's, it's, a, it's a broad topic, but we're going to focus in on how this passage speaks to us particularly about justice. So, Jeremiah chapter 7 starting at verse 1 and going to verse 15. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come to stand before me in this house, which bears my name, <coughs> excuse me, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now go to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. <coughs> Sorry, I've got a little tickle in my throat. <coughs> okay, so there's a lot that we could unpack in this passage, but I'm going to try to focus us this morning on a few things. First, the biblical term justice. Second, the impact of institutions of injustice, and then lastly, a few ways that we can respond personally to what Jeremiah presents us with here. So last week, we looked at Jeremiah's first prophetic word given from the Lord that he was tasked with delivering to the religious leaders in the temple. <coughs> Sorry, this is not going away. Um, but where is Jeremiah asked to go now? He's asked to stand at the gate of the temple the gate is the major intersection where everybody went in and out of the courtyard to go and do their worship, to enter in and out of the temple. So this message, in other words, is not just for the religious leaders, it's for everyone. God has now shifted to wanting to talk to everyone, a wider audience. Yahweh isn't just addressing the teachers and the priests and the prophets anymore. He's pleading with all of Israel to reform their ways. Verses 3 and 4, reform your ways and your actions, he says, and I will let you live in this place. 
Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. (coughs) Now, what's going on there? Other than a silly repetition that sounds like an echo. Well, apparently there's an issue here of people believing that the Lord's temple offers them some sort of protection or absolution. They can just make their routine visits, however many days of the week that they want, but then leave and go live however they want. Why would they think this way? Well, remember last week, I briefly used an example of the Titanic and how newspapers and reporters all advertised that this was a ship that was so great that not even God could sink it. Ironically, the Israelites are kind of believing the same sort of lie. This is God's temple, and not even God himself would destroy it. God wouldn't sink this ship. Why would he do that? This is the temple that Solomon built, the temple that carried all the promises of David. It was the place where God's presence dwelt in Zion. It bore his name. God had already defended it against the Assyrian Empire. Remember, back to the first sermon of these series, Israel and Judah already, we saw it on the map, Israel and Judah are separated, right? They're two separate nations, and the Assyrian Empire had already taken over the land of Israel. So Judah's sitting over here thinking, oh, God protected us from the great Assyrian Empire. He would never let his temple be shut down and destroyed. But see, over time, the Israelites had begun trusting in the institution of the temple over and above the actual reason for the temple's existence, trusting in the idea of the temple over and above the reason for its existence. We're going to come back to this later. But first, what kind of reform was the Lord looking for? What's his real beef with the Israelites here? What was their great failure that they were running to the temple for protection in order to avoid addressing? Well, verse 5, the Lord says through Jeremiah, If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, there's that word, justly, justly. Last week we saw how the people's idolatry affected their ability to witness, and this week we see the further consequences of that idolatry. Because what's the first thing to go out the window when God's people chase after other gods and seek other means of guidance and provision? It's justice. Why is this the first thing to get thrown out? Because only the God who created human beings knows how human beings are supposed to treat one another. So if you forsake the God who created human beings, you will eventually forsake all that he's about. Now, before we go any further, I I need to clarify what I mean when we use that term justice, because it tends to be a bit of a loaded term these days that's used for all sorts of purposes. Oxford Dictionary defines it as just behavior or treatment towards other human beings, okay? So then being just is behaving according to what is morally right and fair towards human beings, okay? That's how it's defined. Now, where our morals come from is a whole other question, But for us as Christians, of course, our morality map, if I can put it that way, comes from Scripture. And in Scripture, we find a God who is deeply concerned about justice, about the proper treatment of human beings. 
So really, Israel's major problem was that they misunderstood God's character because they misunderstood what he cared about. And I guarantee you that every single human being, as Jamie actually alluded to in her prayer, every human being throughout history who's read the Bible has at some point done the same. We've misunderstood God's character because we've misunderstood what he cares about. The Bible portrays God as deeply concerned that his people in particular act towards one another in ways that reflect him, that reflect goodness, care, compassion, empathy, love, and most importantly, his heart for all human beings. See, because in Hebrew, the word justice is actually the same word for righteousness, To act justly is to act righteously, to act in right relationship, to act in right accordance with the righteous God who invented righteousness, who himself is righteousness. All nations, to an extent, were held accountable to God's standards of justice, but Israel in particular had a special calling, remember? They had a special calling to be prophetic witnesses, to demonstrate the true way to live in light of being image bearers of this God who was a God of the whole earth. Their lives were supposed to look entirely different because they served a God who was entirely different. They were supposed to be examples of the righteousness of God and examples of how to treat one another as if everyone was worthy of God's special attention. But, of course, as we've read, and as the prophets iterate over and over and over, Israel had warped this calling, misused it for their own purposes, misunderstood God's character, and came to believe that they were the only ones that were worthy of God's special attention. And when that's the, the, the idea that you live in, of course, then, that's why they thought the temple would never be destroyed, because we are God's special people with God's special attention. And this is his special building in which he resides, and God would never destroy that. But by turning in on themselves, they forgot everyone else, right? When you think that you're the only ones, you know, the frozen chosen, the truly spiritual, the rightful heirs to the throne, whatever language you want to use, if you think that you're the only ones, it's oftentimes justice that goes out the window. And based on this passage, God's people aren't actually being God's people if they don't care about proper treatment of one another, particularly the vulnerable. Verse 5 again, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, and now he gets more specific, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Remember last week? We touched on that word, worthless. Their witness had become worthless because they were trusting in the institutions and in their own ideas more than in him and putting a stain on his name rather than representing it. Israel had, had sort of morally collapsed in on itself because it trusted too much in its own status, its own strength, its own structures, and it had lost its core. The core of its existence, the reason, the purpose for Israel's existence had dissolved and had left a hollowed out people who didn't have a heart 
to care about other human persons. When you lose your core, you lose your purpose. And so what results is stealing, murdering, committing adultery, lying. I mean, I could add in there gossiping, slandering, belittling, shaming. These are all things that hurt people. They're not just wrong. That's not how God asks us to look at the matter. It's actually unjust. It's unrighteous. It's unlike God. When something is unjust, it's unlike God. It's not like Him because it's not righteous. It's not in line with right relationship with Him. And in verse 11, God laments that this house, His temple, which was supposed to bear His name, in other words, it was supposed to, to be a holding place for His character, for His, his mercy, for His, his, his actual um, personality almost. It, would be, it was a place where people could come to know who He was. It was supposed to bear His name but it had become the exact opposite. It was a den of robbers, literally a place where criminals would go to hide. That's what he calls it, a den of robbers. Jesus actually used the same words, if you remember in Matthew 21. He quoted Jeremiah. Why was he so upset when he walked into the temple? If you'll remember the story, Jesus walks into the temple and he sees sellers at tables, um, you know, selling various things, pigeons, whatever, and, and he turns over the tables, remember? Why was he so upset when he walked in to see all these, you know, tens if not hundreds of tables, people swindling, overpricing their goods, neglecting the poor? He wasn't upset simply because people were selling things in the temple. That's not the point. The fact that he references Jeremiah here implies that Jesus was upset because the commerce of the temple was linked to a whole system of injustice that exploited and oppressed the poor. It was a justice issue. It wasn't because money was getting exchanged. It was because how that money was being treated was unjust. What they were doing was unjust. It was linked to this whole system of oppression. The temple had become an institution, in other words, that lost sight of the other, that lost sight of the vulnerable. And in verse 14, God warns the people that this temple they trust in will fall, just like the previous house of worship at Shiloh fell when the people didn't heed his words and his warnings. In other words, God can sink this ship. God will flatten injustice if he needs to. And he will sink this ship if the ship has lost its purpose. The temple you trust in, he says, right in the middle there. The temple you trust in. They trusted in the temple, in the institution, in the idea, in the establishment, in their own authority structures and preferences, rather than in him, which was clear then in how they lived out their lives, in how they behaved. You lose your core, well, that's going to show in how you live your life. How easy it is for us when we trust in our own ideas and habits and structures and comfortable ways of being to forget why we're here and to choose preference over sacrifice. Because it's easy when you know, we read passages like this to think of the more extreme modern-day examples, right? You know, the obvious hypocrites. 
I think of, um, oh, how many movies have I seen where you've got, oh, it's in the Fast and the Furious movies, it's in all the James Bond movies, Jack Ryan we watched recently. You see there's gang leaders, there's assassins, there's CIA agents. They, whatever it is, they go into a church. And you see them kneeling before the altar, praying, and then they go leave and do their evil deed. Obvious hypocrisy, right? They're finding some sort of protection in this religious establishment, and then they go off and kill somebody. And nobody bats an eye about it because it's a movie, but what is this? I think of all the examples of churches that have made the same mistake, right? Famous church leaders that are pastors who had big moral failures because of the pursuit of fame, of listeners, of followers, of money, right? More money, more people, I should say, more people equates to more money, which means we can spend more on ourselves, Not for others, but for the institution. Where so much was done to build up the institution only to find out that, that the core, you know, and I think of, oh man, I don't know if you, any of you have listened to that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mar- Mars Hill, but like, that's exactly what happened to that church. It got built up so much, it was so big. It was doing good things, but it ended up losing its core. It lost the reason for its being. I think also of various instances in church history where the power of the institution, you know, usually in partnership with the, with the government and the civil authorities, was what drove colonialism, the Spanish Inquisition, the slave trade, the pillaging of other people groups and cultures. You know, the, the appeal of power is a terrible one. And Christians are often at their best when, frankly, they don't have it. Influence, yes. Power, not so much. I think also, of course, in light of, you know, the National Truth and Reconciliation Day yesterday, of the hundreds of First Nations children who were stripped from their homes, of their culture, of their dignity, their families. You know, both the church and the Canadian government in that season cared more about the institution of Canada and their own sort of place within that institution and their own status within it than about the people that they should have been working with and empowering. The appeal to power was more than the appeal to care. And as Jesus said, it's better for someone to have a millstone around their neck and to be thrown into the sea than to be a stumbling block for a child. To teach Jesus while stripping someone of their dignity is not of God. That doesn't make any sense. Israel's evil and idolatry had actually gotten so bad We're not going to touch on this passage, but it's later on in chapter 7. It had gotten so bad and so warped that they were regularly offering child sacrifices, their own children, because the institution that they had set up in their own minds, this, this religious way of living that they had instituted and thought was best, you know, in pursuit of all these other gods who were meeting their own needs, that's what this institution demanded. It demanded something so extreme and something so unlike God. That's how far it went. Which is why in verse 31, God says that this was something he did not command, nor did it ever enter his mind. He wants to make it very clear, this is what you're doing, but I did not tell you to do this. I did not tell you to do this. These are, of course, you know, easy examples to highlight. It's so easy to to look back 
But what about us? What, what are the implications here for us? In what ways do we choose preference over sacrifice and use our own resources for ourselves rather than for the other? Right? It's, it's so easy to look back at other people and say, they shouldn't have done that. That was terrible. They shouldn't have done that. But are we any more sacrificial than they were? Really, when it comes down to it, they might have done evil things, but what matters isn't what you didn't do. What matters is what you do. Are we any more sacrificial than they were? Don't we still more regularly choose our own preferences over and above being prophetic witnesses of justice? As one biblical scholar put it, to know Yahweh is to practice justice. And where Yahweh is not known, justice is not embraced. We see this in the narrative of Israel, and that is something we need to hold on to. It's why the prophets are so important for us to keep reading. Because not only do they hold a mirror up to our own faces, but they incite us to do differently. To see how Israel failed. Israel failed to know God. And so they failed to care for the vulnerable people in their midst. And failing to see people in need most often, if not always, implies that God's character has been forgotten. The memory of him, which we talked about last week, has been forgotten because the building up of the institution or fighting for power or fighting for fame or money or whatever it is, comfort, mattered more. Other things simply matter more. See, for both Jeremiah and Jesus... For both of them to threaten the temple, as they did, meant that they were threatening the very foundation of the nation, the core of its identity. The temple had become more of a a national shrine or a, a golden calf, if I can use that term, than a place out of which mercy and goodness flowed. Which is why Jeremiah's prophecy against the institution led to actually the crowds gathering around him. We read about it in Jeremiah 26. This sermon at the temple, this exact sermon that we read earlier, the people and priests were so mad about it that they actually surrounded him and came around to kill him for blasphemy. That's how much their sense of identity and their sense of value was wrapped up in the temple building. And don't get me wrong, it's not that buildings can't have significance. Of course they can. As Eugene Peterson put it, places are important, immensely important. Some of us have gone to religious sites and churches in Europe or elsewhere. They're beautiful buildings. They're places of worship. Sites and buildings, he says, are places where we can gather ourselves for fresh action and assemble ourselves for new endeavors. But, he says, Standing in a church singing a hymn doesn't make us any more holy than standing in a barn and neighing makes us a horse. Come on, you could have laughed a little. (laughs) I think it's funny. It's true. Standing in a church and singing a song doesn't make us any more holy than standing in a barn and neighing makes us a horse. (laughs) Okay? It's true. We can't just come here for protection and think that all of our religious boxes are checked. That's what that's saying. That's what that's saying. For Israel, standing in the temple and reciting the prayers and doing the rituals didn't make them God's people. That's not what it's about. Remember, throughout the Old Testament, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And sacrifice being the ritual of sacrifice, not self-sacrifice. 
which I'm trying to encourage you of, okay? Standing in the temple and reciting the prayers and doing all the things didn't make them God's people because buildings do not matter if the substance within the building has not experienced inward change. It's about transformation. There's no inward change. It's just a hollowed out building. Because it's actually not a building anymore that bears his name. It's not our church building that bears his name. The cross on our front facade, which is beautiful, don't get me wrong, but it it doesn't bear his name. The sign that says Willoughby Church out front, that doesn't bear Jesus' name because his spirit left the business of buildings a long time ago. What bears his name is you and me. We are living exemplars of God's name. That's what our calling is. We bear his name. We bear his righteousness. We bear his justice. We bear his character. People come to know him not because they enter this building, but because they meet you and I. That's what he's in the business of now. It's you and me. We carry it. And so we need to take his justice and his righteousness seriously. We need to take how we treat one another seriously. And the range of this goes all the way from big to small, from the ways that we think about government policies that are done or established to the moment-by-moment interactions we have on a day-by-day basis. You know, it's as simple as how you treat your waitress or your barista. That matters. How you treat other drivers on the road matters. How you treat the man behind the post office counter matters. You can't, I can't even tell you how many times I've been standing in line at a post office and somebody's just yelling at the person across the counter. And you know what? I didn't say anything because it was awkward. But that's a justice issue. It is. And because I bear his name, I have a responsibility in that moment to say, hey, that's actually unjust. That's actually unjust. How we treat people matters. How you treat your children's teachers matters. How you treat the bus driver matters. How we think about ways to care for the vulnerable and unprotected children and youth in our city, for example, matters. How we open up our homes or financially support those in need, children or otherwise, matters. How we choose sacrifice over preference matters. And not because it's the rule or the ethical thing to do, but because Jesus asked us to. We're not a religion of rules. Christianity is about a person who has asked us to follow him to be like him, and to bear his name, not just to the world, to one another, to the first person that we run into in the center of Langley, wherever that might be. Because when we do care, when we do reach out, when we make an effort, we show the people around us what our God is like. We find him in the wilderness of injustice. We have to enter that wilderness in order to see it. But we find him there, and we bring his heart to those in need. 
to the foreigner, to the immigrant, to the refugee, to the child without a family, to the unprotected, to the ones who need love and compassion, who need safety and protection, who are stuck in a system that deprives them of their humanity rather than empowering them. We need to go into those places. You know, oh man, I wasn't sure if I wanted to say this, but you know those children that were stripped away from their homes? You know, Danny and I are currently looking into adopting, and we've been told that for domestic adoption, they are predominantly First Nations children, many with FAS. These poor kids don't have a home because their parents and, and grandparents were affected by what happened earlier. Now, we can't care about these children more than we care about these children. And I don't know what the answer is, but that dawned on me the other day, like, wow, what can we do? What can we do? But that's what I mean. We, we, can't, we can't just stay existing in our own ideas of what justice is. We need to enter that wilderness and see what's actually going on today. Justice issues that are going on today. People, young people, unprotected people, vulnerable people that are being impacted today. And then how do we show God's character within that? How do we do that? Remember the story of the professor that I shared earlier at the beginning? Well, he concluded his little object lesson with these words. What you just learned, he said, in that little object lesson, you wouldn't have understood in 1,000 hours of lectures if you hadn't lived it. You didn't say anything because you weren't directly affected yourself. You, you know, in other words, you watched the student get kicked out of the classroom, and because it wasn't you, you didn't say anything. But he goes on to say, if you don't speak up today for justice, how can you be sure that someday someone will speak up for you? Some of the city's officials spoke up for Jeremiah, which saved his life, right? He'd been surrounded, swarmed, he was going to be killed for blasphemy, and some of the government officials actually stepped in and said, whoa, 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 <laughs> this guy's actually prophetic. Leave him alone. Someone stood up for Jeremiah. He prophetically spoke out, represented God and standing up for the vulnerable, and ended up having someone stand up for him. Of course, the parallels, as we've talked about already, to Jesus are striking in these two narratives. But of course, the ending is quite different. Jesus didn't have anyone stand up for him. Jesus was utterly alone and forsaken. His sheep scattered, and he suffered a criminal's death, what everyone but him deserved. Jesus, of anyone, understands the sting of injustice. But because he did that, he now stands before the throne of God, interceding and advocating and speaking out for each and every one of us who otherwise wouldn't have a hope in heaven. He advocates for us. He speaks out for us. He is the true embodiment of God's justice 
of God's righteousness, the one overflowing with love and care and compassion for we who are weak and fragile and can't help but mess up all the time. Could we not, for his sake, try in all our power, in both big and little ways, to do the same for others? To speak with the capital V voice of justice. Could we not bear his name in how we take care of the other? Let me pray. Living God, this is a hard topic to talk about. Lord, and oftentimes we're left helpless, not knowing what to do. We, we desire to have your heart, and we know, Lord, that we also need to be your hands and your feet. And all of us are called a little bit differently. But we ask, Lord, this morning, by your Spirit, that you would inspire us. Ways, Lord, that we can reach out, that we can have influence, that we can bear your name to one another, to the people we meet outside of this building. And Lord, that you would open our eyes to see injustice, that you would open our minds and our hearts to be open to responding in ways that perhaps aren't preferential to our own comfort and desires, but Lord, are ways that sacrifice for you and for your kingdom. Lord, we've been blessed to be a blessing. Summon us, Lord, to do your work, to be your hands and your feet. Grant us the strength and the courage and remind us, Lord, of how deeply you have given love to us so that we may love on others. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.